Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org slash donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Today on Climate One, we're discussing the future of cars and the auto industry. Tailpipes spew more than a third of the carbon pollution that is driving our weird weather and amplifying the California drought. The federal and state governments are trying to reduce the carbon footprint of cars and trucks by increasing miles per gallon and also encouraging a transition from gasoline to cleaner fuels such as electricity. Electric cars have been on the market for about five years and are now commonplace in many urban areas. About 40% of cars with a plug are sold in California, but they make up just 1% of new cars sold in the state. Still, some car companies and advocates say that electric cars are one of the best ways to combat climate disruption and keep up our mobile lifestyles. I'm Greg Dalton, and over the next hour, we will talk about EVs and other fuels, new technologies such as autonomous cars, the entrance of Apple and Google and Chinese car makers into the market, and other topics on the minds of our audience here at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. We're pleased to have with us four guests. Shad Balch is Environment and Energy Communications Manager at General Motors, which is the sponsor of the Climate One podcast. Alex Bayan is Director of the Institute for Transportation Studies at UC Berkeley. Hector De La Torre is a member of the California Air Resources Board. And Dermot O'Connell is Vice President of Business Development at Tesla. Please welcome them to Climate One. Uh, Hector De La Torre, let's begin with you. Uh, Governor Brown has a plan for fighting, aggressive plan for fighting carbon pollution in California. Transportation is a big part of that. There's lots of pieces. What's the governor doing and how we, how's that going right now? Well, we have multiple uh, venues that, that we're pushing to make this uh, happen. We're doing it through uh, reducing vehicle miles traveled and making communities more sustainable, easier to walk, bike, etc., we're doing it through a low-carbon fuel standard, which is to reduce the carbon uh, impact of the fuel itself that we're using in the vehicles. It is uh, promoting zero-emission vehicles, which is very important uh, to, uh, to what we're trying to do. Uh, almost half of the greenhouse gas uh, emissions are related to the use of petroleum in California. And that is, that is the core of, of what we're trying to do to reduce greenhouse gases in general in the state of California. So those are a few of the strategies 
that we are using. Uh, renewable fuels is, is another one. Increasing the use of renewable fuels that are, again, less carbon intensive. Shad Bolch, what part of that plan, Governor Brown's plan, is GM on board with? What part do you find some, some differences with? Well, the administration has been very supportive of helping create the market for EVs. And that has allowed us to, to come out in full force and, and really achieve some pretty good success with the first-generation Chevrolet Volt, the second-generation Chevrolet Volt, which just went on sale about three weeks ago here, the upcoming Chevy Bolt EV concept car, which will be available at the end of next year, uh, the Spark EV. So all of these new technologies, um, are these plug-in cars, uh, the success of them and the, the market's willingness to adopt them is really in large part due to the collaboration between the automakers, the utility stakeholders, and government. Jeremy O'Connell, um, how much of it is the policy supportive uh, important for, for Tesla? Could you do it without this supportive uh, policy environment? Well, fundamentally, electric vehicles are going to be successful in the long run because it's fundamentally a better driving technology. I mean, people will, um, you know, notwithstanding the zero emissions aspects of the technology, they find when they get behind the wheel of an electric vehicle, and especially ours, that, uh, that it's, it's more fun, it's a, it's a high-performance vehicle, it's safer, um, the handling is better, um, and, of course, it's got the zero emissions profile. So fundamentally, uh, this is going to be driven over the long term by market forces. That having been said, uh, especially in this early going, the policy arena is, is really important. Uh, Hector sits on the Air Resources Board, which um, administers um, a, a policy called the Zero Emissions Mandate, which uh, was promulgated in 1992 in an attempt to get uh, a large volume of electric vehicles on the road um, even 10 years ago. Unfortunately, most of the the major car makers either litigated or lobbied against that mandate, uh, softened and weakened it. Uh, And fundamentally, that's the dynamic that the governor and his staff, um, who, notwithstanding their great efforts, are fighting against. That is to say that the big car companies, all things being equal, would rather continue to do what they're doing. And it doesn't make them bad people to say that. It's just that they've made huge investments in internal combustion technology, uh, and they don't have a natural incentive to, to make that technology obsolete. This goes back to why we started Tesla Motors in the first place, was to provide a catalyst from outside the existing industry uh, to put the best possible expression of electric vehicle technology on the road uh, and to inspire competition to come into that market happily, that's starting, to, that's starting to take place now, but it's a slow process. And, and uh, even in Sacramento this past year, um, the governor made a, a big effort uh, to reduce petroleum consumption uh, through a, a bill called SB 350, uh, which at the end of the day looked very promising, but at the end of the day, due to lobbying from the oil and gas industry, and I have to assume uh, the, uh, the, auto, the automobile industry through some of its associations, the alliance, and so forth, um, lobbied against it, and that the petroleum reduction element was eliminated. So it's ultimately, to summarize, it's market forces that are going to drive this technology forward in the long term and make electric vehicles the, the preeminent technology, and that is going to happen. Policy is very important in this early stage, but uh, it's uh, the efforts of the folks who are pushing the right policies from our perspective right now are really um, you know, fighting a significant headwind, a historical headwind. Uh, so, Shad Bolt, it sounds like uh, Dermot O'Connell just said that auto companies are only doing EVs as much as the government is requiring them. That basically said you're greenwashing. Right. Um, in the old days, GM did lead the fight against a lot of California laws. Has that changed? That's, that's changed entirely, and I have to take issue with that. 
I mean, if we, are, we, are, we sell more trucks and SUVs than anything right now because that's where the market, I mean, the market demands that. That's where we make the bulk of our money. But that is changing. That is not the world of tomorrow. And if you look at the success of the Chevy Volt and the, the, the satisfactory rate of those customers, they are the most happy vehicle owners of any vehicle out there. So what that has done for Chevrolet and the brand overall is akin to what Corvette and Camaro do for the brand. It is, by all accounts, probably the most successful vehicle we've ever done. It, it brings new people into the brand. 60% of people who buy a Volt are Conquest people. That is, they, they owned a competitor car. Number one trade-in, and number one is Prius. Number two is BMW. So, and those have always been targets for us. So to, to say that, that we're fighting against policymakers to, to keep the status quo is just not valid. I mean, we're, I would go even so far as to say that we're not talking about in terms of tomorrow, selling cars in as much as we are about a mobility service. And that means autonomous vehicles, electrification, uh, all sorts of new technologies that are really going to change the way that we sell not a car to you, but a service to get you from point A to B. You're relatively new to the auto, to GM in the auto industry. The, the auto industry has known as a lot of people who are there, lifers who spend their whole career there, who might be more attached to a certain way of doing things than you are as, as a newcomer and the outsider. Sure. Is that fair to say that there's some, that it, obviously it's not, company's not a monolith. It's like well, it's country. not just me. It's pretty much uh, all of our leadership. I mean, the direction of the company in Detroit has fundamentally changed. There are scientists and engineers and labs inventing things on the daily that are going to be put in vehicles that either use little gas or no gas at all. That is where we're headed. I mean, to, to stay with the status quo, to, to think that we're going to be able to sell cars like we normally do, uh, that's just a death sentence. It's all got to change. Hector Latore, you deal with car companies. You're one of the, their top regulators in the country. Uh, do you see the kind of change that Shad Bolch is talking about? It's, uh, it's like pulling teeth. Uh, <laughs> we, we, we very much uh, see the progress that Chad is talking about, but, but it is um, a constantly questioned, uh, and not, I'm not, not, not specific to GM, just in general, uh, we have a midterm review on our ZEV mandate next year. Um, These are the fuel efficiency mandate, uh, also the fuel efficiency mandates. Yeah, for- the, the, the zero emission mandate okay. specifically. And so for, we have certain numbers that, they, that the manufacturers have to produce of zero emission vehicles. And um, every year since, since we passed the regulation, uh, which was four years ago, they've wanted this midterm review to come sooner. When we passed the regulation, we said the midterm review was going to happen in 2016. Uh, so that's when it was set. But w- we regularly, at least every few months, have conversations with them about having that midterm review sooner rather than 2016. We have not done that. We are having the midterm review in 2016. We will see where we're at at that point and make any decisions and, based on that. And that's and, and industry to, overall, right? That's not any one particular uh, Absolutely. And, and to Dierman's point about um, 350, uh, that piece, the petroleum piece, was taken out of the legislation. This is the but, SB 350 that's partially signed by the governor. Yes, yeah. uh, but, the, but it's very important to note that that component, the petroleum component, reducing our petroleum usage by 50% by 2030, isn't an executive order. We are moving ahead with it. Regardless, uh, it's not in statute, but we still have the authority to move ahead with it. We're, we're roughly just doing on everything the way we are doing it currently are on track for about 
uh, for over 20% reduction. So we only need another 20 to 30% uh, more to get to that 50% target. So we are well on our way to hit that target by 2030. And we do have, again, the authority in the executive order. Chad Bolt, is that a good thing, getting away from gasoline? You're making electric cars? It is, it is. But I'd, I'd like to touch on one point that, that Hector made, and that is this midterm review. The reason this is so critical is we have to know what the market is doing. The, the regulation forces us to sell cars. It doesn't force you to buy cars. So we have to, we have to make sure that the market drives this approach. Otherwise, it's, it's going to backfire on all of us. So that's the biggest point of, of making sure we have this discussion so that regulators know what is happening in the industry and how it's happening in the market. Dear Mitt O'Connell? Yeah, I mean, this is, with, you know, with deference to Chad, look, this is, this is the story that we've heard out of the auto industry forever, and especially during these regulatory reviews. You can't, how, you can't force us to build what the public won't buy. Well, how would the public even know that this technology was available without these technology-forcing regulations in the first place? Um, I, look, I'm, I'm thrilled that, that GM is producing the Volt. Um, the Which is not the, a technology-forced no, no, car let me at finish. all. Let me finish. Um, it, it was actually, if you, if you credit Bob Lutz, who is credited as the progenitor of that car, it was born out of a reaction to what we announced with the Tesla Roadster in 2006. And he went to his guys and said, you're telling me that these electric vehicles, they can't be done, and this, little, this puny little company in, in California is doing it, so what the heck? And then they started producing the Volt, and that's out there. And now well, I think what we've shown with, with, um, with our second car, the Model S, in terms of its performance and what kind of range people would like, which is 200 miles or more, GM's doing the Volt, and that's great. But right now we're talking about rounding error numbers that are coming out of the, 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 the traditional automakers. They generally do the absolute minimum that's necessary to comply with whatever regulatory scheme they're looking at, whether it's the California mandate or whether it's the federal mandate that's referred to as CAFE or GHG. They generally will do what the minimum is, and that's a rational decision. So the point is that we need to make, in these early stages, we need to make the numbers high enough so that they put mass market programs on the road. Look at the, if you really want to understand what GM's thinking about, look at the massive investments they're making in their SUV plant in Arlington, Texas, to produce Suburbans versus what they're doing for their Volt and their Bolt program. We need, we need multiple mass market EV programs on the road right now. Um, point is to get these, people, these, these cars in people's hands, and right now, the policy is critical in order to do that. And because Tesla doesn't have that either. Chad Bolt, your response to that? Well, the number one selling plug-in in the country was the Chevy Volt, the Gen 1. That is not a car that was built to meet a regulated mandate at all. So this notion that we're building these cars only to meet a, a, a regulatory requirement is just false. We've invest, we're investing right now $200 million into our Orient assembly plant to build the Chevy Bolt EV. That is happening right now. We've invested $400 million so far in a battery lab in Brownstown, Michigan, which is developing the next generation um, b- batteries for the Bolt and Volt. So the investment is there. It's, it's you know, the, the notion that we're not committed or that we're only building cars to meet a regulatory requirement is I, just I think false. the notion is not that you're not committed, but you're conflicted. That's my point. If, I, I don't, if I'm not no, going to... No, def- no, wait, wait, wait. If you're saying that you're not lobbying for softening of CAFE... And the ZEV mandate, in which I'm not saying, reviews, right? You're not saying that. So, so that's what I'm saying. It's like we need sort of clear signals to the market. We need unambiguous programs. And General Motors, for all the good you're doing on the Volt and the Volt program, is is conflicted. 
And, and no, so, I, I'm and, just, and our business is different. You're, you're I, a single product automaker. I'm a full line automaker. So it's, we just have different business models. And, and, you, I, and I will interject Hector here. The, the Bolt, from our perspective, is a game changer, just as if, if you would do the same thing, which is a 200-mile range, uh, 30-something thousand dollar car. That is a game changer in the electric vehicle marketplace. And so GM does deserve a, a lot of credit for bringing that car to the market. And we need more of that car in the market so people have choice. Hector De La Torre is a member of the California Air Resources Board. We're talking about electric cars, the future of mobility at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. I'd like to get Alex Bayan in here. Uh, this could all be disrupted by new technologies, mobility as a service, uh, Uber, Lyft, autonomous cars. You know, where is that going to take the industry and maybe in ways that none of them like or can control? Yeah, no, I, I really like the fact that we're really focusing here on a single vehicle and how the transition to electrification could really help with climate. Um, there is, of course, a much broader picture, which is the fact that uh, a lot of this inefficiency in mobility is due to congestion. So even when we embrace this broader picture, the notion that we could run more efficient operations um, is extremely important in considering that problem. There's an o- another interesting fact here is that people assume we can regulate. And there was a time when, yeah, maybe you could regulate how cars were sold, which cars were sold, and how a traffic light um, can be used to make traffic better. But we're in a time when a lot of you in the audience and us are using a third-party app uh, built by the private sector to route ourselves, creating complete new traffic patterns that we didn't know before. There are companies in the city and in the world who are disrupting mobility on demand, the new generation taxis and, you know, all, which companies are completely changing the way demand is managed. Transit, a lot of people take transit. We see emergence of transit lines that are just uh, not even operated by the government anymore, just on demand based on people voting. So I think that um, this is very much part of the equation, but I think when it comes to energy efficiency for transportation, we really also have to look at the broader picture of these technologies and the notion that the government might completely lose control on how to regulate them because this is not run by the government anymore. Let's talk about the price of uh, gasoline. Gas is cheap, shed bulge. How much of that uh, is a factor if, if gas goes up again and maybe you start selling uh, fewer SUVs? So that means you're going to start investing more in those battery plants than the SUV plants that, uh, that Dermot just mentioned. No, the, the, that premise is false. The, the investment plans for both technologies is set. That is going forward, both for SUVs and for our electric cars. Uh, but the price of gas is a real problem in terms of, of how we sell these cars and how we're, our ability to sell these cars. When the price of gas goes up, the price for the, the full-size SUVs and truck sales drop. When prices go down, people go and buy the, the big trucks and full-size SUVs. And that bipolar element that we have to deal with is extremely frustrating when we're trying to have a stable market for EVs. Extraditory, hard for the state of California, too, because you're powerful, but only can do so much. Americans have short memories. When the gas goes down, they go right for that SUV with all that fancy package. And that's why we we wanted to have uh, uh, all of the variety for the consumer to choose from. It isn't just battery electric, which we're talking about here. We're also uh, promoting hydrogen fuel cell vehicles. So the Toyota Mirai just uh, was released um, within the last month. Um, Toyota is very much pushing the Mirai uh, from the top levels of the corporation um, to to have this hydrogen vehicle out on the road. Hydrogen, fuel cell, zero emission vehicle. Um, The state is funding 
the, uh, the infrastructure, the stations, the, the gas pumps or the hydrogen pumps at gas stations around the state. We're doing the initial investment to make sure that that infrastructure is there so that people can fuel up again. Um, that is another path. The, the battery electric vehicles, of, again, we want more options for the consumer at all price points uh, so that we can see what they, what they choose. We're not picking winners in this. We want all of the options, and the consumers will decide. A few years ago, if we were having this conversation, drop-in biofuels would have been a lot of what we're talking about, cellulosic from algae and all these sorts of things. Uh, those haven't materialized as promised. The U.S. Navy's bought a lot of them, but you can't get them on the corner anywhere in California today. Uh, are they done, or is it just a matter of time, Hector Delatorre? It's, it's absolutely part of what we're doing under the low-carbon fuel standard. Um, it's a blend fuel uh, that we have, and our target is to be at 10% by 2020. Uh, we think we can increase that as part of the governor's mandate to hit 50% reduction in petroleum. By 2030, we can increase that 10% and blend in more of, of the biofuels. There is one manufacturer, one producer, who produces half of the biofuels, the, the renewable fuels that are used in California today. So when the oil companies are telling us that, that there isn't capacity, that there isn't enough of this fuel, it's just wrong. Uh, if one manufacturer can produce half of what we're using, then clearly there is capacity. Chad Balch, uh, a lot of flex fuel vehicles, but that really in the Midwest, that means corn, which is kind of uh, out of favor these days because it competes with food, not so good. Where do you see uh, other types of fuels being blended with gasoline to kind of wean us away from petroleum? Well, I think uh, one of the quickest and, and, uh, and most efficient ways to reduce fuel consumption is to put these cars on a diet. The more weight you move from them, the more uh, economically be, they become. So we're investing a lot of work in technology to, to use smart materials and mixed materials. So our engineers just invented this welding technique where you can weld aluminum to steel. So that'll allow for the car to be structurally sound but significantly lighter. So it's technologies like that, these eight-speed transmissions that are appearing in, in cars from the full-line trucks down to small cars, uh, the gasoline-powered engines themselves are becoming extremely fuel-efficient, you know, shutting off half the cylinders when you don't need it, uh, direct fuel injection and technologies like that. So we're, we're finding real savings uh, in a variety of different ways aside from having to tamper with the fuel itself. And the Ford F-150 pickup truck, often the best-selling car in America, shed 800 pounds by going aluminum, that, that kind of thing. Right. Um, Dear Mitt O'Connell, the Gigafactory, uh, Tesla Gigafactory, is going to start producing batteries in 2016. Um, or sooner. Or sooner. This, yeah, not, not, in 20, not in 2015. Not going to happen. Um, but it's, there's still... Uh, <laughs> Christmas present. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. The... the um, uh, there's a claim right now Tesla makes about 50,000 cars, and there's a claim on the website for the Gigafactory about 500,000 cars by 2020. Is that really going to happen? Yeah, so, um, so less of a claim. So first of all, to put things in context, the 50,000 uh, is the target production uh, delivery for this year, this calendar year. The, the Gigafactory, which is a uh, facility being built outside of Reno, Nevada right now, is a concept where we're taking all of the production processes uh, in the development and production of a lithium-ion battery and putting it in one facility. Um, around the, 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 the challenge with lithium-ion battery technology right now is that it's built uh, on, on, the, on, the, uh, on the manufacturing side is disaggregated manufacturing processes which lead to inefficiencies 
when you get in, what, what you're trying to get to is scale and manufacturing. And we're, we're building a facility which will take raw materials in one end of the facility and have finished product coming out the other end. It will, at full capacity, exceed the capacity, current capacity of the lithium-ion battery industry right now. The reason we are doing that is to uh, facilitate the mass, the mass market program, which we'll be introducing in 2017. You know, we had to proceed from a low-volume, high-priced car, our, our Tesla Roadster, to a mid-volume, mid-priced car, the car, car we have right now, the Model S and its variant, the Model X. But the whole company was set up to get this mass market EV, what we call the Model 3. The capacity of that facility is, uh, is targeted to supply the fleet that we project to be selling by that time, by 2020, as you say, which would be the Model 3 and its variants, its variants being uh, the crossover SUV, the SUV that would be built on that smaller car platform, just as we built the Model X on the Model S programs. Shad Bolch, seems like the Chevy Bolt and the Model 3 are kind of going after that, that middle market. Is that middle market really there, enough cars for, to, for Bolt and the, the Model 3 to have that many car EVs sold in America to kind of middle-class families at around, what, $30,000? Yeah, I think that's, that's sort of the secret sauce is the range of about 200 miles at least with the price of about $30,000 before some of the incentives. That is the sweet spot that we think that we'll really be able to penetrate into the marketplace and get these cars picked up in larger volumes, for sure. And will Chevy put and General Motors put uh, advertising and resources behind selling those cars? We will. I mean, uh, personally, the, the marketing and advertising campaigns we had for Gen 1 Volt were they fell short, and we learned, and we're trying to figure out the best way to explain these cars to people in 30-second spots, which is really difficult to do. Uh, the good news is, is that once people drive the cars, they fall in love with them. I mean, it, EVs are, across the board, by far superior than conventional gas-powered cars. And people realize that once they get to spend a little bit of time driving one. So figuring out the way to communicate that is what's going to be key to getting, these, getting people to pay attention to these cars in the showroom. It's anyone who's driven an electric car, that immediate torque, it's much better. And yet it seems like a lot of the ads are about polar bears and virtue and all these kind of good, good things. Well, They're not is, about the, raw yeah, you know, that's a problem. testosterone fun. A car is probably the second most expensive purchase a lot of us are going to make. And to try and convey a social responsibility in order to, to spend that kind of money on a product like that is a really hard proposition. So you've you got to do what sells, and that is performance and looks and the way you feel when you drive it. A few years ago, 2011, uh, General Motors invested $7 million in a company called Envia that was supposed to have a, a breakthrough in, in battery technology. What's the latest on that? Is that coming? I haven't heard much from that company since. A lot of breakthroughs, a lot of technology looks great in the lab but doesn't make it to the marketplace. Is that an example of that? It is, and, and you never know until you try. Our partnership with LG Chem is quite the, the contrary to that. Uh, we now, in our Gen 2 Volt, the battery pack is 20 pounds lighter, has 94 fuel, fewer cells in it, and gives you more energy. The technology advancements that have been made over the last five years in battery development are pretty wild. And the rate of advancements is going to only increase going forward. So those kinds of partnerships are, are, very, are key and very strategic. Shad Balch is a manager uh, with General Motors. We're talking about electric cars at Climate One. Our other guests are Alex Bayan, director of the Institute for Transportation Studies at UC Berkeley, Hector De La Torre from the California Air Resources Board, and Dermot O'Connell from Tesla. I'm Greg Dalton. We're going to go to our lightning round and ask you for uh, brief uh, yes or no answers to these questions, uh, starting with Dermot O'Connell. 
Volkswagen is German for catch me if you can. Yes or no? Yeah. <laughs> I think the, what the news about Volkswagen highlights is the fact that uh, the diesel technology has, has essentially reached its apogee as an you know, from an efficiency and an emission standpoint to the point where engineers are now forced to cheat in order to make the cars compliant. I think that this itself is suggestive of the fact that we need to be thinking about other technologies, and I would submit that electric vehicle technology is right there for Volkswagen to adopt and to pursue. Uh, yeah, they got a lot of money sunk in other technologies. Um, uh, Hector De La Torre, uh, other, uh, yes or no, other automakers are nervous about VW cheating scandal because they have skeletons in their closet too. We're going to find out. <laughs> <laughs> we, are, we are doing a review of all makes and models. We're starting obviously with Volkswagen. The announcement that was just made that some Porsche, Audi, and other v- VW vehicles uh, were also using that, that same technology to cheat um, uh, clearly has gotten our attention. They, they won't need to test ours. Hydrogen. <laughs> Shad Balch, you, uh, you probably uh, mentioned this. Shad Balch, uh, Chevrolet could sell more volts by advertising them more aggressively. Yes. Um, <laughs> Alex Bayan, no one really knows if Uber, Lyft, and other ride-hailing companies increase or decrease the number of cars on the road. Um, if the answer is nobody knows, the answer is yes. <laughs> no one knows. <laughs> do some research. Jeremy O'Connell, Elon Musk told a German newspaper, quote, if you don't make it at Tesla, you go to work at Apple. I think the competitive spirit of Silicon Valley is what drives so much technology and and innovation, and and we should celebrate that. (laughs) (laughs) Was that a yeah, yeah, some kind of yes, okay. Um, Shad Balch, Tesla will have difficulty scaling because it is difficult to build and sustain a large organization on the whims of one mercurial leader who holds power tightly. More power to him. <laughs> um, Dearmud uh, O'Connell, Tesla is as good at match- in manufacturing hype as it is at manufacturing cars. Untrue. Hector De La Torre, uh, the Chevy Bolt is a game changer because of its affordable price and 200-mile range. Yes, I said that uh, earlier, and, and we want to see more of that, whether it's from Tesla or, or other uh, manufacturers out there. We want to see more options uh, down uh, the price range. And Hector De La Torre, if GM can push the Pontiac Aztec, they can push any, any product. Breaking bad. Yeah, breaking bad. There you go. You can't, all you need you know. to know. <laughs> Finally, uh, Shad Balch, GM executives who decided that the Chevy Bolt would follow the Chevy Volt we're out drinking when they made that branding decision. I mean, it's made my life more difficult. I <laughs> All right. How do you think they did? Let's give our thanks to the... Um... And now, here's a Climate One Minute. Ten years ago, the consensus was that demand for fossil fuels would increase while supply went down. In fact, at least in the U.S., the opposite is happening. Bill O'Reilly, head of the EPA under the first President Bush, joined us earlier this year... Riley says our appetite for gasoline is decreasing for good reason. 
in the United States, something has happened, which I think is really very, very significant. It's never happened in my career before. It started happening about five years ago. We leveled off in terms of vehicle miles traveled. And Americans are driving fewer miles today. Now, there are more of us. There are more cars that are being sold and manufactured every day. But at the same time, we're driving less. I think that's a very significant uh, and probably important continuing change in our economy. It um, has to do, it would appear, with the fact that a lot of millennials are preferring to live in cities, and some of the baby boom generation are retiring, and uh, they're choosing cities and densely settled areas as well. That has profound consequences, I think, for the future. I would give a non-mainstream view about the future that I think is uh, we're going to see a continuing reduction in demand. Bill Riley, former head of the EPA, was talking about a drop-off in gasoline consumption. But that change in America's driving habits could also impact the market for personal vehicles. We'll hear more about that in the second half of our program. Now here's Greg Dalton and his guests at the Commonwealth Club. Let's talk about autonomous cars. They get a lot of uh, attraction, a lot of uh, attention these days. Uh, Shad Balch, GM is thought to be head leading, you know, in that area. What, how's that going to change the industry when uh, these autonomous cars are basically media platforms as well as mobility devices? Yeah, this is the, the service that I was talking about earlier that's going to get you from point A to B. Uh, we do have, we have a fleet of volts that are going to be running around our Warren Technical Center uh, later this year, or next year, later next year, that are going to be fully autonomous. And the idea is that it's going to be a, a rapid laboratory test bed for this technology. Basically, my colleagues will be able to pick up their device, summons the car, program where they want the car to take them, off they go, and then the car goes and either parks itself or charges. So we're going to have this actually happening in Warren at the end of next year. Um, and it's, it's a good precursor to see how we're going to be able to implement this technology on the road. And then there are also precursors in cars now. So, for example, the... Um, the new Cadillac CT6 is going to have what we call Super Cruise, which basically allows you to take your hands off the wheel, feet off the pedals, and let the car just sort of navigate itself down the highway. Um, and that's, that's coming later next year, too. So these, it's happening. I mean, little, little bits of it are dropping out along the way. A lot of data is going to be collected about, for, from it, and it's, but it's definitely in our future. Does that mean you can start drinking when you do that? Some of the consumer research we've shown... Uh, it's a little bit frightening. I mean, we <laughs> put people in these cars, and one guy reached around and grabbed a newspaper and just started reading it, and he just assumed the car was going to take him forever. Yeah. So it's, the good news is, is that consumers are they're open to the idea of it. Uh, it also tells us that we need to figure out ways to make sure we keep their attention. And Hector De La Torre, regulatory-wise, maybe it's a little bit outside your area, but there's a lot of regulation that comes into mind once you start having autonomous cars out there. Is the state ready? Oftentimes, regulation lags behind technology. Well, in the case of, of the autonomous cars, uh, it is allowed right now for testing purposes. There was legislation signed by the governor. So um, the initial step has been permitted, uh, but it will require a lot more as we see the, the variance of what this technology can and can't do. And uh, Alex Bayan, there's a lot of uh, connection that can happen with smart traffic systems so that these cars can kind of reroute themselves. With, so paint the bigger picture. This is one piece of an evolving technology landscape for how we get around the Bay Area and California. Uh, totally. Um, the one thing I don't want people to leave the, with the impression with it, you know, if we have a 
freeway packed with electric cars. We have not solved the energy problem, though. I mean, obviously, uh, the energy is being produced somewhere else. And so, you know, the, the, the problem of congestion is a problem which is decoupled from the type of the car. I just want to, since we didn't bring that up in the previous segment. Now, specific to your question, I think the future, a future with electric cars is uh, there could be many such futures. I mean, if you think of no regulation, you could imagine a scenario in which each of us has a self-driving cars, which is going to spend three hours on the freeway or just uh, circling around the block to pick you up. What does that do to energy and what does that do to even your quality of travel? It's going to be horrible, right? So I think that um, sooner or later when that technology starts to really uh, take off at a scale where it becomes a massive proportion of cars that are driving by themselves, um, the regulator will have to kick in so that these smart systems that we're building right now um, become effective with that new technology. And that's a complete unknown. I mean, there are many, many use cases of these cars that we have not even started to think about. Dear McConnell, we're going to have a lot of electric cars stalled on the freeway and people you know, cruising on their uh, iPads while that's happening. Is that a question? <laughs> uh, look, I'm a little bit more libertarian than some of my colleagues here. First of all, we've, we've already introduced um, something which we call autopilot. And in fact, I, I drove up here today from our headquarters in Palo Alto with my hands uh, off the wheel occasionally, touching there, um, but essentially the car steering itself and with my feet off the pedal. So this exists right now, and, and I think it's, it's really how we uh, roll this technology out, how we introduce consumers to it. We need to be responsible and forthright in terms of you know, what's, what it can do and what it can't do and what you shouldn't do uh, as we proceed. But fundamentally, there's a lot of utility here that, that uh, the, the, the car-driving public is going to discover for themselves. If autonomous driving in its ultimate form uh, comes to be, and I fundamentally believe it will, and sooner than anybody thinks, it will be because it, there's a value to the drivers. And um, how that value manifests itself in the future is unclear, but certainly one can imagine. I mean, we're the generation that were promised flying cars, right? So it, it seems at least a modest advancement that we should be able to drive um, and, uh, and conduct other business, uh, probably much more safely uh, than the fashion in which we do it right now, toggling our, our iPhones and... Uh, and having a cup of coffee and trying to keep our hands on the road. So all this is really promising. I think the specter of regulation is, is untoward right now. There's a strong framework uh, in the U.S., in China, and in Europe. We know this because we've just, we've just released this technology. Um, and, uh, and, and I think it governs in a responsible fashion how this technology can be rolled out. There's a lot of work still to be done, but, um, but we're finding tremendous... Uh, a tremendous reception for what we've just recently introduced. And I think that's, that's going to lead to a demand for more. Chad Balch, Apple, Google, other companies, technology companies getting into these mobile technology platforms. How's that going to change the auto industry? And it seems like the center of innovation, if not gravity, is moving from Detroit to Silicon Valley. Well, I mean... Silicon Valley certainly is really good at what it does, and um, the technology that comes from this area, I think, does have a place in the auto industry in other parts of the country. So I don't think it's an, an either-or scenario. I think that there are some probably interesting collaborations that will happen. We're already working with both Google and Apple on integrating their systems into our vehicles now. You have Apple CarPlay and Android Auto, which basically allows you to project what's ever on your device onto the screen in the car so you don't have to deal with any of the automaker's uh, you know, specific infotainment systems. You get to use what is familiar to you on your device. Um, we've partnered with Google last year on a, a car sharing program, which basically allowed Googlers to, uh, through an app, 
connect together with based on your schedule and your the time that you need to travel to and from work. And we provided the cars, Spark EVs, for them to demonstrate this sort of car-sharing platform, too. So uh, I think there's a place for all of these sort of stakeholders to come together and probably come up with some pretty interesting solutions to some of these problems that we've been talking about. But does that mean smaller market share for Ford and GM if Apple and Google and other companies are in there? No, I think it's different. I think, um, you know, Google and Apple don't really make cars. They don't sell cars. So perhaps there's... Yeah. Well, true. Uh, But it is a business that we've been in for quite a long time, and we understand, you know, from historical purposes, the the auto industry and how to market cars and what works and what doesn't uh, better than most. So I don't think that there's, like I said, I don't think it's an either-or situation. And I I think that it's a space that we need to play in. We certainly are paying more attention to Silicon Valley than we ever have um, because if we miss that boat, I mean, that's catastrophic to our business. Dermot McConnell, does Apple and Google actually make cars? Do you think they partner with Ford and GM and become kind of some blended thing where they provide the technology and Ford and GM provide the wheels? Yeah. Um, I, you know, I think we'll see. Um, I, connected to your last question, I think, I mean, this is a great thing that we're seeing here. Uh, the, the emergence of new entrants, the, uh, the, the emergence of Silicon Valley as a center of gravity for automotive technology, um, if I have one critique of the, of the incumbent industry as I came into it 10 years ago and I had no prior experience in automotive, was that you know, it was an industry with a lot of delivered wisdom, which was highly geographically centralized in, in Detroit. And there were some super smart folks there. But when you've got a, uh, this, this constellation where the, all the ideas are coming out of one center of gravity, you know, it, it doesn't, it, it doesn't, uh, it's not a rich system for innovation. And so I think it's great what's happening right now. Uh, if Apple produces a car, uh, that's wonderful. It certainly will take share away from uh, from somebody. I mean, we uh, we outsold uh, just the the Tesla Model S in the first half of the year. We outsold uh, every car in its category. Uh, the you know the Mercedes S Class, the BMW um, Seven Series. So you know there are winners and losers here, but I think that's a good thing. I mean, it's going to lead to greater m- more solutions more diversification. Variety is a good thing. Variety is a great thing in terms of the brands and the products that we have. It's a great thing from a national security perspective in terms of the fuel sources that we, that we power our transportation on. So um, this is all great. I think that this is, I mean, what's really important here is that we're entering a new epoch in, uh, in mobility, whether it's mobility services uh, or the technology that's in the vehicles, the platforms themselves, uh, or whether it's the new brands that are coming in from outside of the sector, it's fantastic. I mean, it, it is the most exciting time to be in this industry that I can possibly imagine, excepting perhaps when the industry was kicked off at the beginning of the last century. Hector De La Torre, kind of a, a golden age for automobiles, and yet we got this big carbon problem that we need to solve. Uh, absolutely. And I, I want to make a point. It isn't just about technology. It's also about anthropology. We're seeing uh, the demographic shift that's taking place with millennials, uh, if you look at uh, the baby boomers and then the Gen X and now the millennials, each subsequent group uh, has gotten into a car later. Uh, so baby boomers, about 75% got their license within a year of being eligible to get it. Gen Xers, uh, about 70%. Um, the millennials are down in the mid-50s. They are not getting their driver's license. They are not driving Uh, right out of the gate the way we did. Um, And that has significant impacts 
for uh, the auto manufacturers, all of them, uh, in terms of how we use these vehicles. In terms of the greenhouse gas reductions I mentioned earlier, in California about half of our uh, GHG emissions come from either the production, the refining, or the use of petroleum. Uh, we have to reduce it. There's, there's no way you get to the targets we have to get to without touching that, uh, significantly touching that 50% uh, chunk. And so we are going to continue to push on all the fronts that I mentioned because we have to, we have to hit our targets uh, by 2020, by 2030, by 2050. We're talking about the future of mobility at Climate One. Our guests today are Hector De La Torre from the Air Resources Board here in California, Dermot O'Connell, VP of Tesla, and Shad Balch from General Motors, and Alex Bayan from the Institute for Transportation Studies at UC Berkeley. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, I want to ask Shad Balch, typically people think that Detroit and Houston are in, in alignment. The oil industry and the auto industry are in close alignment. Is that still the case? And how about utilities, which are increasingly, if you're going toward electric, another partner? Well, if you look at the, the biggest product announcements that our largest brand, Chevrolet, has made over the past year, year and a half, uh, they are products that use significantly less or no petroleum at all. So um, if you're in the oil industry, that probably would cause a second look. But uh, that is where we're headed. I mean, we're, we, we need to diversify our portfolio. Our goal is to get off of petroleum-based fuels as a primary fuel source. Um, the cars that are the most popular for the Chevrolet brand are those that run on electricity, not oil. So I think it's pretty clear. Do, you, do the phones ring in Detroit when stuff like that happens? Get just Houston calling saying, hey, what are you guys doing? I, they don't scratch our back. I mean, there's no, <laughs> there's no you know, reciprocity going on at all. It's, you know, it's... Our customers want to get off of oil. It's, a, it's a, quite a luxury feature to be able to drive past the fueling station and not have to stop and pump gas. Do some auto dealers and auto companies want trying to make life difficult for Tesla because the way they sell their cars directly to uh, consumers rather than through dealers? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't work in a, in a, in a store, so it's, I can't say for sure. Um, I, I, I do know that with... These new cars coming into dealers, uh, there is a lot of effort being paid to try and make sure that they understand where this fits in their lineup and why this is an important technology that they need to sell. Um, there's a lot of, of legacy behaviors in car dealers that we're trying to overcome to help figure this out, how to better get over uh, you know, their old habits of selling vehicles so that they're focused on what's the most, what the most important thing is. Dermot O'Connell, because in Texas, you can't buy a Tesla in Texas. You have to, like, go across the state line. It's like an illicit deal, right? you got to kind of do it in darkness. I, I, I wish, I mean, I, I, I sympathize with Chad, but I wish it was just habits. It's actually incentives. Um, you know, Tesla sells direct through our own stores. Uh, we have our own distribution, our own stores, and our own service. The reason we did this is that we wanted to, uh, we wanted our customers to have the best possible experience with the vehicle, and we wanted to represent the technology as the progenitors of the technology, uh, not the, the original progenitors, we didn't invent electric cars, but as the progenitors of this brand and this, this iteration of the technology, we wanted to represent that personally to the public because we had an unambiguous interest in, uh, in making sure customers had a great experience. Furthermore, uh, it's the case that for the most part, uh, in the dealer system, which is a, you know, 
The, the dealer system works like this. A manufacturer like GM sells a, a group of, uh, you know, 100 cars to a dealer who then resells them with a markup to you, the general public. Um, that's the historical way that the system has worked, and it's, been, and it's enshrined in law in certain places such as Texas. But the business model around incumbent, uh, in, internal combustion technology is that the dealers make very little money on the relatively little money on selling you a car unless they, unless unless they uh, do a better job of negotiating the deal, haggling with you in the first place. Where they make the bulk of their money is in the service and parts business when you bring that vehicle back to be serviced uh, or in the financing. But on the service and parts piece, uh, electric vehicle, vehicle technology basically takes that piece out in large part. I mean, Tesla has a goal of making no money in our service, on the service side of our business. Um, and so this is why we set the system up. Now, it does run afoul of certain laws, um, uh, protectionist uh, systems, such as in Texas. The good news is that we can sell in most parts of the country uh, directly to the public, service directly, and that's not a problem. But in a, certain, a couple of key states, Texas and Michigan, um, we're, we're barred from selling direct. Now, those people in Texas and Michigan, and we have huge populations of cars there, can still go to our website, call us up, order a car, but we're constrained to sort of drop shipping the car pretty much like Amazon drops a car in front of your house. So that's, that's a little bit, that's not a great customer experience, and we're trying to fix that. But the good news is that, for the most part, we can sell directly across the country. Anything to respond, Chad Walter, before we go to audience questions? The, again, we're in different businesses Tesla and us. I mean, they have one product. It's much easier to do that. We, our dealers sell a full line, and also they make most of their money on the used car business. I mean, those places have to exist as well, and a lot of those are integrated into new car dealers. So the models are very different. Well, yeah, but we're, we're both selling cars. Let's be clear. The, the model, we are, we're both selling cars whether or not we have one car or you have hundreds of cars. That's not the difference. The difference is that in almost all states in the country, a manufacturer who's, ever, who's had a dealer is barred from selling direct. So it could, it's arguably the case that GM would want to do the same thing that we're doing, if only to maybe eliminate some of the friction that you have when you're introducing the Volt and the Bolt, but you are barred by law in a much more strenuous way than even we are. We're a manufacturer who's never had a dealer, and this means that we can sell directly to the public. GM is barred across the country, and as a matter of... of, of principle, I don't think that's right either, but that's the, that's the constraint that they have on their system. So GM and, and Tesla can both sell direct. Maybe that would be good. Of course, we'll hear from the auto dealers on Monday. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Hi, I'm Dana Hull. I'm actually a journalist at Bloomberg News, and this is a question for Hector. Um, the Volkswagen diesel emissions scandal is still in its early stages. We have a lot more discovery and investigations to go through before we even get to the penalty phase. But my question is, is there a discussion in Sacramento as to how the fines that Volkswagen ultimately is going to have to pay to the state of California will be used? Will it be funneled to you know, asthma prevention or a furtherance of ZEV incentives? I mean, what's the kind of thinking as to what the, how the fines are going to be used? Well, there's, there's two, two parts to the answer. The first part is we're not alone in this. Um, the federal EPA and the Department of Justice are involved in this as well because they didn't just break our law. They broke theirs. So we're partnered. If you noticed, uh, today's announcement was in Washington, D.C. We were part of it, but it's the three of us working together. Uh, In terms of the impact in California and mitigation going forward, um, initial discussions have begun. Uh, But 
you cannot start uh, pinning that down until you know the scale that you're talking about. Is it the first batch of vehicles that that we caught? Is it now the second batch of vehicles? Is there going to be further batches of vehicles that we discover this with? And so we don't know the scale. Uh, and until we do, uh, we are just looking at what some possibilities might be. That's our next question. Welcome to Climate One. So I'm Bill Bunnan. Uh, I own a hybrid, and it's reduced the amount of pollution I'm responsible for significantly. And it's done it with uh, – it's paid for itself in fuel savings. Um, it has not imposed any sorts of additional problems for me, like range anxiety or anything like that. And in spite of that, hybrid sales are an anemic percentage of the total car sales in the world. Is that something we should be worried about? Who'd like to tackle that? Well, I mean, there are incentivization programs. There's incentivization programs which in the very early ages of hybrids were very instrumental in launching this, with, especially in California, with a direct access to the HOVs. And I think this is really where uh, the government can help. Uh, it can help really any companies where there is a shown positive footprint um, on, on the uh, environment, on the energy consumption. And uh, I think every state can legislate differently, but certainly in California we have a good history of this. Well, and to your point on every state... There are only two states in the United States that do HOV access for, for high-mileage vehicles or zero-emission vehicles and a rebate program. That's us in Hawaii. And then there's only one other state that couples HOV uh, status with uh, a state tax rebate, and that is Utah. Um, that's it. Three states that double up in the whole country, and, but, and that needs to improve. But let's take it out of the policy and, and government support arena. I, I would argue that I think it's terrific. Hybrid technology has sort of been a, a platform upon which electric vehicles have been able to, you know, step forward, and, and that's a good thing. But I think you have to ask yourself, you know, for the, for, the, for the mass public, does a hybrid technology, does it offer all the utility? Um, does it offer the performance that a pure electric vehicle might? I mean, I think I would submit that an electric vehicle is a much better performing vehicle, much better handling vehicle. Uh, and offers a better value proposition uh, to the consumer. And that's why I say, at the end of the day, this technology will win because it's a better technology. It's a better driving technology. You can do more interesting things with the platform. And hybrid is it's transitional, and it's, it's had its benefits, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised if it, doesn't, uh, if it doesn't achieve significant market share, especially in the face of, of uh, the technologies that are coming, uh, coming forward, whether it's the plug-in hybrid technology of the Chevy Volt or, or the pure EV technology that we and others are offering. Let's go to our next question. Welcome. Um, so we all probably know that electric vehicles are only clean if you're getting energy from a clean source. So big problems in infrastructure and being able to create that energy. Is there anything that the manufacturers are doing to help excel that right now? So if you're in a coal state, your EV car, dear Mitt O'Connell, is, could be dirtier than a gasoline car. Yeah, not really. Um, it's not certainly not as clean, but it's uh, it's cleaner generally speaking than than uh, than petroleum-driven uh, vehicles in, in its class. That's number one. Number two, what we are doing to answer your question directly is we've taken the battery technology we've developed for the vehicle and we're repackaging it uh, for energy storage, which can energy storage is gives you the ability to basically store uh, store generated energy, ideally renewable energy, so solar and wind and so forth, that's generated by day or during intermittent periods with wind uh, to store it for the time when you want to use it. So it breaks, 
it breaks down the, the traditional linkage between when you're making energy and when, or when, you're, when you're generating power and when you're using energy. So that we think that with energy storage, as we're producing it both for the residential market as well as for the commercial industrial as well as and right up to uh, utility scale, uh, that that really links the whole thing together. Because if you've got solar and wind on this hand, if you've got the ability to store it and use it when you need it on the other and an electric vehicle, then you can be essentially a net zero enterprise. I have a, I have a, a, a house like this myself right now, and so I've essentially decoupled myself from the grid. And this is something, this is a, um, a concept that's not possible with, with all the technologies we're talking about. With fuel cell, it's a little bit, you, in theory, you could imagine it, but basically you've got to crack the hydrogen somehow, and the best and cheapest way to do that is unfortunately in the traditional refining process you know, biogases and so forth uh, have their own issues. But this is really, I think, the true promise of electric vehicles. Bring renewables on, scale them incrementally, have storage there, and have the, uh, have the ability to drive around on those electrons. Uh, let's go to our next question. Welcome. Yes, hi. My name is Ann Arquit Niederberger. Um, I'm with the firm Enervy. Um, but I used to be responsible for climate policy in Switzerland for 10 years. And so for me, when I come to a discussion like this, I'm always, I always hear it's, all about cars, right? And so I wanted to ask you all, um, when you think about electric vehicles in the bigger picture, how does the car part of it fit in with, like, the public transit part of it and the bicycle, the electric bicycle part of it in terms of overall productivity of the transit system? Because um, I think in this wonderful climate that we have in California, a lot could be done with electric vehicles with a lot less material intensity, um, like bicycles. Um, so I feel like it's all focused on cars, but have you looked at the bigger overall modal split thing and across all them, electric? What would be the vision? Shad Balch, you actually... Yes, so um, I appreciate you bringing up electric bikes. So as part of our, uh, our business update at the 1st of October, uh, our CEO announced that she's uh, putting in development a electric bike uh, that we'll be selling. So that, it's a prototype right now, but it, it's just an example of the bigger picture mentality that we are looking at. Um, and I think when you talk about autonomous cars and electric cars, they go hand in hand. I think that uh, go hand in hand with the car sharing model, rather. So I think um, that, that, that trilogy of technologies will become more relevant and will become uh, a primary focus for how we figure out the best way to incorporate all of this uh, as a transportation solution, not just selling cars. Hector De La Torre. And clearly today's panel is about the personal vehicle, but uh, at CARB we are looking at goods movement, for example. How do we clean up goods movement? Uh, so that means trucks and ships Tr and trucks, uh, ships, uh, airplanes uh, down the road. But the, but the idea is what we know is that diesel causes it has over 80 percent of the cancer causing effects of air pollution. Uh, we have to deal with diesel in California. Um, it, it obviously has GHGs, but it also has this cancer causing impact. So uh, goods movement is a significant push. Transit. Uh, we are uh, promoting and pushing for electric buses or, or hydrogen fuel cell buses or, or whatever we can get the manufacturers to, to produce and, and roll out here in California. So it, we are looking at the full range of mobility, not just personal vehicles. The, uh, we're, we have to end it there. Our guests today are, you heard from Hector De La Torre from the Air Resources Board here in California, Dermot O'Connell, VP of Tesla, 
and Shad Balch from General Motors and Alex Bayan from the Institute for Transportation Studies at UC Berkeley. You can join the conversation uh, on Twitter. You can also catch this podcast and other podcasts of Climate One in our website, climateone.org. I'm Greg Dalton. Thanks for coming here at the Commonwealth Club, and thanks for listening on the radio. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. Jane Ann Chen is the producer, and Alyssa Kerr is our assistant producer. The audio engineer is John Rieger, with help from Will Llewellyn. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Join us next week for a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. <laughs>